Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm going to share the story of my journey to Costa Rica and the lessons that I brought back and implemented in the farm and how this journey saved my life. I would definitely say that it saved my life. It certainly was one of the biggest impacts to change the direction of my life. So the big question is this, how do we live in more sustainable and regenerative ways? How can we tap into the ancient secrets of living in harmony with the sacred nature of life? How do we embody the interconnected web of life that thrives in abundance within each of us? That is the question, and this podcast will explore the answers. My name is Craig Hubbard, and welcome to Shambhala Living. That was 2016. I'd been running the farm full-time for four years. Uh, the first year we, we shared the first couple of years in a previous episode, we talked about the floods that came and they came pretty regularly until we, we wisened up of how we can, we can deal with that. The first few months it was just on my own and it was, it was pretty brutal work. It was, it was wonderful work as well as being brutal in terms of it was just long hard hours um, mozzies in the in the dusk and dawn and um, just long hours of sort of sleep deprived time then i had mick come and join me uh, mick turned up one day and and i found out he'd been working for the previous owner and he'd been working for that previous owner for the last 25 years for, at the farm that we were at today and also the farm they were at in Brisbane. He was a godsend. He just did all, he already knew all the machinery, knew everything. He knew how to grow food on the way that we needed to for the market garden. And he just took over all sorts of the jobs that I was trying to do, which meant I was relieved to think and plan more and strategize more of the direction that I wanted to, to take the farm and where it was taking me as well. Then one day uh, a guy turned up, a backpacker, and he said, I, can I come and uh, work for you guys? And I, was, I said, oh, we, we currently have already got someone working here. We can't afford to take on anyone else. And he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a woofer. And I said, what, it's a woofer? And he said, oh, it's a willing worker on organic farms. And he said that we come and we work for free in exchange for food and accommodation. And I said, well, we don't have anywhere for you to live. Um, and we've got plenty of food here. And he said, that's fine. That, like most woofers just want a tent site. They just want access to some water. They want to learn or participate in organic food growing. And they want to live in a, in a bit of a paradise and, and travel around the world. So there was an actual movement, and, and there still is uh, today, called the woofer movement. And at first I didn't understand that that would, was a thing that, you know, people would be willing to come and just work hard and they, they worked really hard. And so then from that day on, we opened ourselves up to that and we had dozens of people at a time coming to stay. It started as two and then three and then four and, and there would be tents popping up and little humpies getting made. And, and then over the, the course of the year, we would have around 20, 25 people each year for three to four years and they were from all over the world 
So it was like this melting pot of, of ideas for sustainable living and healthy living and we would practice yoga and bake bread. We'd go on walks to the, to the mountains and the oceans and they would teach me things from their countries and I would share what I'd learned about food growing and together we would we'd grow food, make compost, plant seeds. We started making banana breads. We would build cabins and humpies and do bamboo harvests. We'd make a, a wood fire pizza oven and a little mini yoga shala, not the one we've got today, but a little little one and we would practice yoga. And, and it was a beautiful way to live and work with a community, very close-knit community. Uh, at the time I was living with my partner, which was Jem, that I'd, I'd shared the story of how we came together in Sydney and, and that led me to the farm. And we had our two children, Isaiah and Kaya, and we were living in the one-bedroom little cabin after we'd moved out of our tent into there. And then we started inviting people and accommodation, as I said, was very non-existent. It was, it was grass and some of them were in hammocks. And they were also benefited by that if they worked three months on a farm, then they could apply for a second year visa. So there was people from all over the world that were hungry for living a, a more adventurous life. And some of them came and they weren't as enthusiastic. They didn't fully know what this whole lifestyle was about. But as they got into it, even the ones that were not enthusiastic and, and they would be cooking their food over the fire and they'd be participating in the germination and they would be learning the whole ways of, of sustainable living over this three-month journey. And I used to look at it like Mr Miyagi and, and I say that in the, the, the farm and the processes were like the way Mr Miyagi would teach Daniel's son in The Karate Kid the, the art of martial arts. It would be paint the fence and wax on, wax off and sand the floor and and at the time Daniel Sun didn't know you know why Mr Miyagi's making him do all this hard work and then and he gets angry and he says you know I'm sick of being your slave I don't want to I don't want to be doing all your your hard work and then Mr Miyagi throws a punch and and yells out to to do wax on or wax off and then he's throwing these kicks and these punches and Daniel Sun starts realizing that the, the way that he'd been doing the uh, paint the fence and the wax on, wax off, he was learning martial arts. And I found that over the course of three months, each job was hard and laborious and you couldn't really see the whole picture because you can't really see food growing unless you're, you do it over a time lapse. Often it would get halfway and, and people are like, why are we just doing all this hard work? It just seems brutal like it was for for me but then as you kind of got to the end of the time you'd start to see the seeds that you'd planted right at the start and the compost that you were making start to come to fruition and it was always like this beautiful moment of recognition as the woofers were leaving and they would they'd harvested the food that they'd grown they'd eaten that food and they'd shared that food but much of what they had planted they won't get to enjoy. That got to be passed on to the next lot of woofers and they would often meet and they'd meet 
on the you know I'm leaving and and the next one's coming in they're kind of a bit nervous of what's going on and why am I camping or tent in the in the forest and and then there was this beautiful transition of like the baton that the the woofers became the teachers to the next group of backpackers and it was a beautiful way to observe the frameworks that we'd put in place that were continuously evolving over the time through play and joy and work and sacred living and honoring the earth became this beautiful teacher to all of us. I was continuously learning and at the same time putting together this larger body of work that I'm only now starting to see as that is coming all the way to fruition. But I'm skipping a a bit here, but I'd like to read something that we had on the wall for all the woofers and everyone that was part of the team back then. And that was from the book, The Prophet, by Khalil Gibran. And this was also written in 1923. And it was about Siva. And Siva is work in service. So service. So how can we turn our work into work of love and it can become sacred work, any work. So it goes like this. Siva is work as love. You work that you may keep peace with the earth and the soul of the earth. For to be idle is to become a stranger unto the seasons and to step out of life's procession that marches in majesty and proud submission towards the infinite. When you work, you are a flute through whose heart the whisperings of the hours turns to music. Always you have been told that work is a curse and labor a misfortune. But I say to you that when you work, you fulfill a part of earth's furthest dreams assigned to you when that dream was born. And in keeping yourself with labor, you are in truth loving life. And to love life through labor is to be intimate with life's most innermost secret. Work is love made visible. And I just loved that. It was beautiful and it was the essence of everything that we were doing at Shambhala and the farm. It was this hard work that most of us in today's busy digital age have forgotten. We've been marching towards efficiencies, profitabilities, productivities, but we've got out of sync with the march of the earth and the season. And it doesn't take much to come back into them. At first it can be uncomfortable. It can feel like hard work. Back in 2016 we are, early 2016, Something happened that rocked the foundation of my world and toppled me. I almost lost the business and lost everything. And I didn't know if I was going to share this or not, but I, I remember that I was building our, our home. We'd moved off the farm for one year because the stress was starting to come down on the family. I was working hard, long days. There was a lot of people on the farm and there wasn't much of a boundary between life and work and family. And when Jem and the kids at the time would open the doors, there would be people out in the field. So it, it started to wear on, on us and our relationship. And we decided to move off the farm and live nearby, just up the road 
five minutes up the road in Doonan. And I started to transform the, the shed that was here into our home so we could have a, more privacy. And I was building the, well, I was helping the builders to, to build this home. And we were, we were about halfway through, sorry, we were, we were halfway through laying the foundation. I, uh, I got an a email came through one morning and I was after I'd been digging the holes for the, the posts this home and Gemma had gone away to Hawaii for a for a workshop and had met someone and at first I thought maybe it was a, just a short-term thing but it turned out to be that that was the, the end well I thought that was the beginning of the end and what I came to learn was it was obviously a long time ago and often the guys we find out when we've messed up and so me focusing so much on on my work had taken away from my focus on the family and on my relationship and, and I found out that them didn't want to be together anymore after several years of now being together about seven or eight years our two children and in a previous episode I share that we didn't originally think we were going to be together but then after a couple of years of being together I, and having another child, having Kaya, and really devoting ourselves to growing this farm and building this farm, I thought we were doing really well, you know, with my blinders on, working, working hard, and I missed that. And at, for a while I, I was heartbroken, I was, I was ripped apart. I went into deep states of depression, I just wanted to finish it all I didn't want to run the farm anymore I didn't want to do the building I didn't because the whole the whole reason I was doing the farm was for my family and I thought I had failed I thought I'd you know failed at being a, a husband or a, we weren't married but a, as a partner and I'd failed at being a, a father and and then I also felt like I'd failed at being a business person and a farmer because I thought we were running it as a family farm and and it was pretty devastating. The whole foundations has just been rocked. However, life would carry on and the markets would be ready and the team by then we'd moved on from having just woofers and we had a, a paid local team. So they would turn up and there was work to be done and that march just kept going and the weeks and the months came on I realised that I needed to to get away. I had lost my mojo with the farm and I was willing to to let it all go. I had already previously decided to buy the farm as in part of the the separation and and take it on solo and so the weeks and the months now had kind of had um, accumulated into this place where I had realized oh, I've, I'd taken on too much and um, I just wanted to give it all up. So I had an opportunity to go to Costa Rica and I'd heard about this place and I was in a space in my life where I was open to, to some change, something different. I always thought that could be something I might do later in my life, but then it occurred to me, well, why, why not go now? Uh, do the thing that you never did when you were a teenager in, a, in your 20s and that was to, to go away surfing, go overseas surfing. So I packed up my board. I'd heard about this little place in 
Costa Rica called Pavones, which was the longest, the second longest left hand wave in the world. But what really appealed to me was it was in the jungle. It was remote and I just wanted to, to get away and to just to be immersed in nature because I thought I was in nature at the farm, but I had realized I'd built or grown this machine. The farm was this machine that then kind of, I got caught up and spat out in it. And I think going back to that quote of, from the prophet that we walk in step the seasons and if we miss our step, it, will, it just keeps marching on. We need to keep that alignment with nature. And I had got out of alignment I wasn't resting and I'd, I'd gone too hard and I'd lost the foundations with the family for me. And this opportunity presented itself to go to Costa Rica. And I thought, well, let's do it. So I jumped on a plane. I flew to San Jose, jumped on another plane, a smaller plane down to this little place called Golfito. And then we took a four wheel drive to the town of Pavones and it was right down the very tip, the southwest tip of Pavones, right on the border of Panama. And there was this amazing surf there, just a few cabinas and farms around, surrounded by farms. And it was just totally isolated. There was a little truck that would come in on this dirt road once a week where we could get our fruit and veg I was there for three months. I, I went there for the maximum amount of time I could for the visa. And I was there to just surf and just immerse myself in health. Because I realized when I was back in Australia that the, the situation that I'd got myself in was either going to break me or make me. I didn't want to be a bitter old man that couldn't learn from this. So I had chosen to make my health my highest priority and so i'd been swimming i'd been surfing and i just to be immersed and to do something like this was feeding my soul at the deepest level feeding this deep urge within me that was to just reacquaint myself with the natural rhythms so those rhythms for me during those months were get up early and do my breathing eat delicious mangoes that were just dropping off the trees go surfing and the surfing there was was amazing and it, i got to be the fittest i'd ever been then i'd come back and stretch and do some yoga and meditation eat more fresh food and go out for another surf read books i was riding doing so much riding i wrote some of the manuals that I still use today for our program. And it was the most amazing time. And the gift that I got was meeting the Costa Rican people. There was the expats that were there, but then, and mostly that's who were there. There was the expats and then there was the Spanish people that had been there for many generations that were the farmers. And then there was this group that I'd heard about that were living in the jungle, in the reserve, they called it. And no one was allowed to go into the reserve. That was only for them. So none of the expats that I'd, I met there had ever been there. But there was this one guy, his name was Pablo, and, and he was connected to this reserve by way, 
that he would take them some supplies from time to time. He'd help them build a school, he told me. And, um, and I'd gotten to know him really well over the time and I was, I'd taken a little bit of the magic I used to do in Australia just for fun. And I was doing some, some magic for the, the school kids. So I'd go to the school in this little, little Pavoni's town of Costa Rica and, and we put on a magic show for the kids and, and they loved it. And, and then Pablo said, I, I've, I'm going to the annual native gathering in the, in the, the reserve. And he invited me to come and meet these natives. So he packed some horses and went on this journey. The forests or the jungle there was was so thick that we couldn't ride the horses for most of the part because it was just so hilly and just intensely rugged terrain. But they were carrying our food and our, our water and our supplies and some uh, some uh, mostly some extra supplies for the natives. They would do that every three or or, or so months. But once a year, they were putting on this festival. It was about a, a day and a half's walk, just straight through this forest. And, and I was just in awe in this forest. And if I looked up for too long, I would lose Pablo. And, and I would then have to, you know, chase, chase up to him with, with my horse. And we got to this clearing one morning, one early morning. And we hadn't seen any people. It was thick forest and if you got off the track you would you could get lost or I, I would get lost so quickly I was sticking to that track and that track was hard to find because it, it was thin and the growth around was constantly taking over the track but there was this clearing after a day and a half of walking into this reserve and then we started to see some natives start coming out of the woods out of the the forest and they were dressed immaculately in these beautiful garments beautiful colorful handmade garments everything that they had there was just handmade from the jungle apart from a few very um, basic resources like some rice that was brought in but all the rest of their food and clothing and building was all from this jungle as we're sitting and waiting, more and more people started to come. Children, parents, older people, all coming out of the jungle to meet in this gathering. The gathering was about the size, sorry, the, the clearing was about the size of a, a football field and it had a couple of uh, humpies that were the school. And, and this was literally in the middle of this forest, a good day and a half walk in. And they'd built, when Pablo had helped them build this little school for the kids. And they were all clean and, and I, I didn't know where they'd come from. I'm like, Pablo, where, where do these people come from? Like, where are they living? And he said, oh, they've, they've got little, you know, pockets where they live in the jungle here. And I, I was just blown away that these people are living like they'd been living for hundreds and most likely thousands of years and they were here for their once a year festival. I was observing, they, they had brought me there to put on my magic show, put on a magic show 
but I was in awe. I was just like, oh my God, like this is amazing. For most of the, the part, I was just watching and observing the different age groups, putting on these songs and dances, recitals, kind of like we would see at a school or a gathering, a community gathering anywhere, but these were all beautiful ancient storytellings and the, the older men would be sitting around the edges drinking this tea that they would mix with their saliva and pass on to the next and there was this understanding that their connection to the earth through their saliva through their digestive tract and the earth itself and the biome they were they were making these fermented this fermented tea that was meant to be so healing and so sacred and and I and they offered it to me and and I you know I was a little nervous about it but I, I I drank it out of firstly out of respect and and then to just a sip and it was a sip and then pass it on and and it was the collective um, organism connection I guess from each of the the people in the gathering would all connect to the collective cup and in this gathering there was there was over a hundred people living in the jungle so then I it was it was my turn to put on a show and I I started to do some some magic tricks and, and Pablo was like we'll have to say oh Blanco, Blanco magic Blanco magic no one spoke English I didn't speak their language it was all just hand signs and nods and smiles but I could sense very quickly that the the illusions and the magic that I was doing was, you know, they believed in magic and, and I, I realised that I, I don't want to disrespect any of their customs and their traditions. So we just ended up doing some more fun uh, things and I did some juggling. And, um, but that day they gave me the greatest gift in this and it was this gift of it's so much simpler than I thought that we can have this thriving life. These were healthy looking people from what I'd been told from 80, 90 year olds down to these newborns and uh, all the way. Not just, So most of the time what I've seen in rural places and especially farming communities, the kids would leave, you know, but in this case you had the whole spectrum of, of the community there and they were all healthy happy that was the that the biggest thing that i i had realized and learned was how happy they could be with the most simplest humblest way of living and that lit up the spark within me and and i i have that today from that space and that was enough just to see that to be part of that and to be invited in to this special sacred place that not many white people have ever been in before so i'm so honored to have been invited into that space and then i got to go back with one particular family and i was so curious to see where where do they live i got taken through the jungle and they all after the day had finished they all dispersed and disappeared there was nothing left no rubbish no trash it was just back to the the field that it was and the trees and the and the quietness and then we followed the track for an about 
four hours and got to this little humpy that was in the middle of nowhere and that was this family's little dwelling and they had banana trees and plantains and vegetables and they had a newborn baby and they had their cot made out of timber from the, the forest and the table was made out of the, the timber from the, the forest and, and everything, their entire life came from the forest. Their religion was the forest, their everything was the forest and at no point was there any sign on their face of struggle or that this was hard. It would have been a, compared to the way we were living on the farm, which a lot of the backpackers and, and some of us, in, me included, at times it was hard work and but it was nothing compared to this. But when I was there, it was, it was so abundant. It was so abundant. They had everything they needed, everything they needed. Nothing more, but everything they needed. And I got to see a different way of interacting and growing food with a forest. So they were growing food in this way that I hadn't really understood because I was only growing perennial, uh, sorry, I was growing annual crops that would come and, and go very quickly. And they were growing large uh, trees that were, were perennial and they were eating green bananas and plantains and cassavas and and that's when I realized that we had a very similar climate to to where we were in that particular zone of Costa Rica to where we are on the Sunshine Coast and I realized that I couldn't be growing this kind of food in these kind of food forest systems on the farm and it can be a magical way of living doesn't have to be this continuous turning over the soil, growing the food, letting it harvest, letting it grow and then harvesting it down to and then turning it back over, continuously weeding and this workload that was just so continuous that it was not fun. And then on the other side I had this lifestyle of these Costa Ricans, these native Costa Ricans that had given me the most sacred gift of living immersed within the forest in happy abundant ways with a thriving family thriving community and that was the vision that i brought home to shambhala totally reinvigorated me then i started to implement what i'd learned there and i'm still implementing that today and that led me on to finding out about syntropic and agroforestry and one of my teachers agenda gosh from brazil I have since learned more and more and on one side learning and on another side continuously putting into practice learning from the nature itself. So that's the gift that I want to share. The journey from being on the farm for for the years, having a complete meltdown and breakdown and a complete change of life to learning from an ancient culture being immersed in the forest and learning that not only can we that we there is people still on the planet living in the forest in the jungle in the wild and thriving at all stages of life and i realized that that's that's what i want to learn live learn share and that's 
the vision or the, the mission of Shambhala now is to bring that. We're slowly doing that and the transformation of the farm from this ankle high crops to now having forests and there's we're still only taking baby steps but where we've come in the last couple of years from that has been amazing and that's the story of the gift that I had of going to Costa Rica and learning about food forests and how we can grow both our veggies our annual crops our herbs as well as perennials in this harmonious way that we call food forests or syntropic and syntropic means the opposite of entropy so we have entropy that energy falls to its lowest level and that's what happens in most agriculture that we plate it to a point where it just falls to, to its lowest level it's it's got dying soils so we have to continuously each year put more and more energy into it to keep it moving as opposed to syntropic it is working harmony and symbiosis with all of the different elements of nature and tapping into amazing engine of of mother earth mother nature it's allowing that to thrive when it's in balance so that's what syntropic is all about and we'll go deep into that in an episode but that was the the way i learned or at least got exposed and had the vision ignited in me from this beautiful gift and the native people of Costa Rica. I'll end this episode with a prayer and a, a, a thank you and a gratitude to the, the natives that are out there in Costa Rica and in other places around the world living in the jungles, in the forest and thriving. How can we do our best to support them to expand the diversity of the forests uh, expand the forests themselves and to allow them to have a life that is thriving because often they are getting reduced further and further through forestry and removing entire ecosystem but there is a way there is a way that we can live in harmonious balance with the forest that is the gift that i've I was given, I'd seen, I'd touched, I'd partaken, I'd drunk from that sacred cup. And that is the vision that I'm here to share, that there is a way and that we can do that. We don't need to live in the forest, but there is a way that we can live in harmonious balance with this earth. And that's how I would like to, to leave this today. So thank you to those natives that gave that vision to me. Om Shanti Shanti. Thank you and I'll see you in the next podcast. Thank you and I'll see you in the next episode. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Shambhala Living Podcast. If you enjoyed it, then I'd love it if you would share it with some friends and subscribe to this channel and turn on notifications so you can find out when the next podcast comes out. You can find us at Instagram at Shambhala Farm and also check out our upcoming 12-week food growing course. You can find out more details on our newsletter list or on Instagram. I'll see you on the next episode.